In our previous session, we looked at the first four verses of chapter 12, which introduced two signs. First, the woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars, a sign representing the restored nation of undivided Israel. Then there was the red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. A second sign representing both Satan and the Confederation of States organized under the leadership of Antichrist. In this session, we'll look at the continuation of the sign of the woman and her birth, put that in scare quotes, of Messiah, and her need to flee into the wilderness for safety. Then we'll begin, we'll just... Just a taste of the continuation of the dragon sign, the war in heaven between Satan and the archangel Michael. The time frame in chapter 12 is quite fluid. It roams all over the place, not just pointing forward or backward in time, but doing so with abandon from one verse, even one sentence to the next. And especially in the first six verses. Verses 1 to 6 seem to serve as an overview of the entire chapter, with verses 7 to 17 backing up and then expanding on what's already been set forth with more details. Chapter 12 as a whole, but especially verses 1 to 6, is an enactment of the prophecy set down by God himself back in Genesis 3. We started with this a long time ago. Genesis 3, 14 to 15, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The serpent, representing Satan, would indeed bruise the seed of the woman, Messiah. That is, an injurious blow, a non-fatal blow. But Messiah would ultimately crush the head of Satan. That is a fatal blow. Blow on the head, fatal. Blow on the heel, injurious, but not necessarily fatal. As it was and will be played out, Christ Jesus, the seed of the woman, was indeed killed, but was raised to life. And ultimately will reign over all things in an eternal kingdom. He won while Christ's adversary will go down to defeat and an eternal life in fire. Now let's read our first two verses. Revelation 12, verses 5 to 6.
She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she was placed where a, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. As I mentioned in passing last week, verse 5 is a remarkable condensation in just one sentence of the redemptive life of Christ Jesus, beginning with his birth on earth and ending with his glorification in heaven. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. There he's identified. We don't need to worry about, wonder about who the male child is. And her child was caught up to God. He ascended to his throne. One would imagine, as I'm sure Satan did, that a huge, fierce dragon crouched in waiting would hold the advantage over a woman in the travails of childbirth. Woman is kind of at a disadvantage there. Not to mention the advantage over a newborn. Alas, Satan's best is for naught when matched against the Son of God. That the Messiah would be born of Israel, a descendant of David, was foretold by various Old Testament prophets, for example, Micah 5.2. And his Jewish lineage is emphasized in both Old and New Testaments, for example, Matthew 1 begins with the lineage. Plus, for dispensationalists especially, it is poetically appropriate that this picture of Israel giving birth to the Messiah would be included here. For the tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob's distress. We get that from Jeremiah 30, verses 7 to 9. Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress. But he will be saved from it. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds, and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. This one born to the woman Our verse tells us, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Tells us immediately who the child is. Here the vision quotes Psalm 2, an important messianic psalm. Let's look at that. Psalm, the second psalm. Verses 7 to 9. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy, as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Thou 
Every time you read a psalm, Patty, we're reminded that you have the old NASB. No apologies. I enjoy that. That's, that's my Bible on my desk. A rod of iron is hard, solid, unyielding. And that fact draws us into a deeper consideration of the word translated rule in our text. In some passages and versions, and break in others. By so doing, we get a clearer picture of the sort of millennial rule conducted by Christ Jesus. The word in the Greek is pomeno, which on the surface has a pastoral meaning. It's gentle, it's gracious, it's taking care of the flock, ruling, ruling the flock, to act as a shepherd. But it also carries with it the connotation of destroy or shatter. As we see in Psalm 2.9, it's the Hebrew ra'ah. And in Revelation 2.27, same Greek as in 12.5, pomeno. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my father. So it's, it's both, and depending on the context. Here, Messiah's millennial rule is described. He will rule the earth, the nations, with justice and mercy. But he will suffer no fools. Those who rebel against the king will be broken. They will be shattered as a cheap clay pot is shattered by one stroke. Not to be repaired, but to be thrown on the ash heap. Back in the first century, the cheapest item in your house was that clay pot that you carried, carried water in or poured wine out of or whatever. Even for those impoverished, even those without money, if a clay pot broke, you didn't fix it. You just threw it away, got a new one. That's why archaeologists love, that's what they are looking for, shards of clay pots, because they, they, the pieces were often used as scratch paper. You, you broke a, the, the wife broke a clay pot getting water, well, she'd throw the pieces in the corner of the house, and if they wanted to write down, as a, you know, dear, on your way home, get us a gallon of milk and, and butter, they'd write it on the shard of clay and then after it's used it's thrown away so archaeologists look for those they dig them up so it tells them a lot about regular life no charge as MacArthur puts it quote the phrase rod of iron speaks of the resoluteness of Christ's rule he will swiftly and immediately judge all sin and put down any rebellion end quote And even though I have repeatedly pointed it out, is there really that much difference between Jesus in his first parousia on earth and Christ the King in his second? 
In his first time on earth, Jesus was gracious, patient, forgiving to the humble and truly repentant. But at the same time, he could quickly and publicly condemn and rebuke the religious hypocrites. Matthew 23. He didn't pull any punches with the religious leaders. Even as the Lamb, Christ did not suffer fools. So maybe there isn't that much of a contrast between the Christ who is to come the second time and the one who was here the first time. As we leave verse 5, note that in this one sentence, time moves from the birth of Christ in Bethlehem forward to Christ's millennial reign, then back again to His ascension to the Father. Time is very fluid in this chapter. Now verse 6. On a same note, Henry Alford points out that the whole of verse 6 does the same thing as regards time sequence. The verse says, He may nourish her there for a thousand two hundred and sixty days. The whole of this verse is anticipatory. The same incident being repeated with its details and in its own place in the order of the narrative below Revelation 12, 13 and following. The fact of its being here inserted by anticipation is very instructive as to that which now next follows. As not being consecutive in time after the flight of the woman but occurring before it. And in fact, referred to now in the prophecy as leading to that pursuit of the woman by the dragon, which, as matter of sequence, led to it. Clear as mud. That's Henry Alford pointing out how verse 6 moves back and forth in time. So the verse is, Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Let me add a rather extensive sidebar which flows out of my research for this verse. In the general milieu of Bible study, there seems to be something different, something extremely different where it comes to the study of the Revelation. I have never before experienced in studies of Hebrews, the Thessalonian letters, Colossians, Philippians, Galatians, and 1 Corinthians, for example, such an alienation from or abandonment by so many heretofore useful scholars. There's something peculiar about Revelation. Sufficiently singular that many reliable sources for other studies leave one standing alone in the dust. In a moment, I'll be directing us to the Olivet Discourse found in Matthew 24. In preparation for that, I turned to D.A. Carson's massive commentary on the Gospel of Matthew and was immediately reminded that this highly regarded, and rightly so, 
scholar does not even see the end times in what Jesus says in Matthew 24. Only what happened to Jerusalem in A.D. 70, when the Romans came in, destroyed the temple, destroyed the city. Even though Jesus' discourse to his disciples is in answer to their question, quote, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Well, duh. Yet Carson sees only A.D. 70 when Jesus described, decided, I can't read my writing, Jesus Oh, oh, decidedly not return. He didn't come back in A.D. 70. They asked him, when are you going to return? Well, he didn't return in A.D. 70. Now, I have sat spellbound while listening to some of Carson's discourses on Scripture. He's an amazing scholar. He can make this book glow with Wonder and amazement. One comes away fascinated and supremely edified by the way he can weave together passages in God's Word and bring it to life. I take my hat off to Carson in that regard. Yet listening to what he had to say in a lengthy series of lectures on the Revelation, I finally had to turn him off. I just couldn't take anymore. All this to say, if you think what we have been studying so far has been confusing and a challenge to apprehend, it is nothing compared to your confusion and frustration if you mixed in, if I mixed in, all the other theories and positions out there. The solution, in my modest opinion is to decide where you stand on the eschaton and stick with it. As Alfred points out, Henry Alfred points out, this episode is fleshed out in verse 13 and following. Jesus also spoke of this very moment to his disciples in his Olivet Discourse, found in Matthew 24. Let's Please turn there. And let's begin with verse 15. Matthew 24. And he's the last one, Scott. Matthew 24, verses 15 to 21. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. 
you left out let the reader understand. It's all right. It's scripture. It's there. Now, with due respect to Carson, parts of that may indeed picture Rome's destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, of course. And there was abominations going on in the temple during that time. That we see that as a now not yet prophecy. It was initially fulfilled in AD 70, but it was not the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy which describes the Great Tribulation, especially verse 21. The Tribulation of A.D. 70 was not, quote, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world, nor ever shall. In that Gospel passage, we have several mile markers in what Jesus said that tie it not just to the eschaton, but to our passage in chapter 12, verse 6, and 13 and following specifically. Abomination of desolation, standing in the holy place, that is, Antichrist, the servant of Satan, taking his seat of power in the Jerusalem temple, as well as the installment of his statue as the object of worship. And the beast from the earth, the false prophet, will supernaturally give voice to that statue, which will impress the people. Say, ah, he really is God. Second, flee to the mountains. That is, the woman Israel fled into the wilderness. And third, there will be a great tribulation. The last three and one half years of the tribulation. Beyond these, beyond those specifics, the entire discourse, Matthew 24, is wrapped in a warning to beware of false messiahs. Verses 4 to 5, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Verse 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. It's a clear reference to the time of Antichrist and his right-hand man, the beast from the earth, the false prophet. He's his wingman. He'll be doing all these things that impress people. And he'll be, he's his PR man. God's Word does not tell us where God will hide or protect Israel. I've, I've read some fanciful ideas about that that I have chosen not to share. And I see a little point in trying to guess where. It doesn't matter. The, the important takeaway is what God is doing for His chosen people, not its location. Since the Mediterranean is on this side, it'll probably be on the other side, somewhere in the wilderness, the desert. A study of the last things serves to reinforce two truths of Scripture, but truths that are often forgotten or set aside by the Christian church, even actively denied by some churches. First, 
No matter how much he has chastised them, no matter how many times they have disappointed him, and how many times he has and will pour out his wrath on their rebellion against him, the Lord God loves Israel. As a father loves his children, he always has and always will. His reason, his word tells us, his reason is that he loves them because he loves them. That's it. It's the only reason he needs. It has nothing to do with them. The church does not replace Israel in the Lord's affections. Israel remains his chosen people. But those of Israel that steadfastly refuse to accept Jesus as the promised Messiah will join Gentiles in perdition. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 11, 25-27, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Semicolon, and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Did you notice the wording there? Catch that? God is doing it all. He is changing Israel. There will come a moment in time, and we're upon it in our narrative, when He will will change their hearts. God will make a new covenant with Israel. The old one was not unconditional. The the first one was conditional. You do this, and I'll do this. If you don't do this, I'll do this. There were conditions. And of course, he had to do the latter, because they didn't. This one's different. This one is unconditional. We may not understand all the details of this, and we'll not delve deeper for the moment, but there will come a point in time And we're upon it in our study. I see no reason to doubt it will be during this time of protection during the last half of the tribulation. When God will Himself change the heart of Israel as a nation regarding Christ Jesus. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Jeremiah 31, 33-34. At first blush, we might question 
taking this literally. For it sounds as if it will not be a matter of individual faith, which is what we're accustomed to, right? Nothing nothing like this is done for a nation. A nation does not turn to Christ. It's individuals. It's the individual heart is changed by the Spirit. The individual makes a decision to follow Christ because of what the Spirit is doing within him. Don't do that. But never forget that that too in us was an act of God. When we read what He's doing for is will do for Israel, we think, well, now wait a minute. You mean God's just going to do it? Just stroke of a pen, He's going to do it for them, the whole nation? Yeah, it's the same thing He did for each one of us. He's the one who made the decision. He's the one that wrote our name in His book of life long before we were a twinkle in our Father's eye. He did it all. The only difference is that He's going to do it for them as a nation. Our faith was ignited by the ministry of God's Spirit in our lives. God, before the end of all things, will do the same for Israel as a nation. Now, I think... I'm not going to be dogmatic about this. It may be that it is just for the protected remnant. I'm not sure. Not sure on that. I confess, I'm not sure. Because it also, there's also prophecy that speaks of other ones left behind in Jerusalem. And what happens to them? Will they be changed too? I'm not sure. Dr. Darnold... Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the late great Donald Barnhouse. The second covenant is to make new men of Israel. A nation will be born in a day. God will put his law into their inward parts and write it in their hearts. He will be their God and they shall be his people. God will manifest his sovereign electing grace on a national scale in behalf of Israel even as He showed His sovereign elective grace on a personal scale to those who believed in Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. Somewhere around the middle of the tribulation, God will remove Israel from the direct danger from Antichrist in Jerusalem. He will protect her, His people, His, the woman, in the vision. And twice we are told in verse 6 and verse 14 that she would be not just protected, secreted away in some wilderness, but nourished. I like that. They will be nourished. The word is trephosin, to feed, to cause to grow, to bring up to rear. They won't be stuck in a rock somewhere. He's going to nourish them. He's going to sustain them, feed them, teach them, change them. Until the climactic return of the Messiah. 
In light of that tender mercy shown to His chosen, it is not stretching the imagination at all that this three and one half year period will also be when God will, as Ezekiel prophesied, give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in My statutes and keep My ordinances and do them. Then they will be My people." And I shall be their God. Ezekiel eleven nineteen to 20 As if they hadn't been up to that moment. Because they were disobedient. They were rebellious people. This in preparation for the return of their new Lord Jesus. Their true and only Christ. Now the second truth reinforced is that Jerusalem is truly the navel of the world. In God's eyes, it is the most important city on earth. Again, why? He doesn't need a reason. just is. He declares it so. Remember how Christ Jesus lamented the city's rejection of Him. Jerusalem. Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven. And what city will be the focal point of the new earth where God the Father and Son will one day take up residence? New York, Paris, London? Nope, Jerusalem. I love the fact that North America isn't even mentioned in the end times. The passage before us, verses 7 to 17, is profound, disturbing, and challenges many of our predisposed thoughts on heaven and hell, God and Satan, their respective angels and their respective domains. For just one example... Ask the average person on the street, where is Satan right now? What will they say? What will they answer? I know I don't do it very often, but I just ask a question. Hell. Right. (laughs) Yes. Amen. And yes, he will surely answer that Satan is the one in charge of hell. But that's not true. Satan has not yet even visited hell, much less been the resident master of it. The first and only time he will be in hell is when it becomes his fiery residence for all eternity. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, let's not let us out of it. At the other end of the spectrum, even believers can have a rather sterilized perception of heaven. But especially those unfamiliar with God's Word can imagine that heaven is simply unending sweetness and light, interrupted only by sunshine baths in fields of daisies or dreamy walks along the seashore. Even for those who regularly study the Bible, it can be shocking to read of, quote, war in heaven. where these two cosmic extremes collide. 
Thus, I believe it would be unwise to plow ahead into this passage as an abbreviated coda to this session. Instead, I'd like to use our remaining time to outline the coming passage, approaching the forest from the long view, before we begin examining the bark on each tree in our next session. So please follow along with me. We're going to begin with verse 7. John MacArthur claims that chapters 12 to 14 of the Revelation, the parenthetical visions, recapitulate the events of chapters 6 to 11, the seals and the trumpets, viewing them this time from Satan's perspective. I'm not yet convinced that's the best way to look at this section, but we'll see. He also organizes verses 7 to 12 into three sections, the battle, the victory, and the celebration. Yet, in the following verses, 13 to 17, right after verse 12, Satan is enraged and still hard at work trying to do his worst to Israel. Celebration indeed. In verses 1 to 6, we are introduced to the woman, Israel, the red dragon, Satan, and the issue from the woman, the male child, Messiah. Now in verse 7 is introduced the fourth principal character in this drama, Michael, the archangel, who leads the holy angels against the rebellion of Satan's evil angels. Verses 7 to 9 comprise the first unit. The war is fought, Satan's forces lose, and are thrown down to the earth. So let's read verses, chapter 12, verses 7 to 9. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. Get the repetition? They, he says it three times. Verse 8, And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Verses 10 to 12a narrate the victory celebration in and for heaven. But don't read more into this than is here. Heaven has at last been rid of the pollution from Satan and his angelic followers. The rejoicing is meant for those environs alone. Verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when they faced, even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Period. Let's stop there. There is no similar rejoicing on earth, for that is where all that evil now calls home. 12b, 
Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Now we're going to dig into this in much greater depth in the following sessions, but imagine, why is the Great Tribulation called the Great Tribulation? What's different? It isn't just Antichrist. His boss is now living on earth. Satan is now not just roaming around, including heaven, but he is here. He's now, for the first time, permanently out of heaven. Where is he instead? Earth. Literally, hell on earth. Satan is living here now. And his number one servant is on the throne. Satan has three and a half years to do his worst. There's a line in the final Harry Potter movie. I know you were waiting for me to get to that. There's a line in the final Harry Potter movie that perfectly describes the situation in verse 12. Harry, who has a supernatural connection to the mind of the bad guy, Lord Voldemort, is explaining to Ron Weasley and Hermione Granger how Voldemort is presently feeling to him. How Harry is experiencing inside him in his mind the thoughts and feelings, even actions of his nemesis Voldemort. He explains to his friends about Voldemort. He's angry and scared too. He knows if we find and destroy all the Horcruxes, he'll he'll be able to kill. We'll be able to kill him. I reckon he'll stop at nothing to make sure that we don't find the rest. There's something wrong with him. In the past, I've always been able to follow his thoughts, and now everything just feels disconnected. Ron suggests, well, maybe he's very weak, and maybe he's dying. Harry replies, no. No, it's more like he's wounded. If anything, he feels more dangerous. That's where we're at in verse 12. Satan is not crippled. He's not discouraged, ready to give up. If anything, he's now dramatically more dangerous than ever before. He's enraged. He's been kicked out of heaven. He's all of his angels as well. Knowing he has only a short time. In verse 13, he renews his attack on Israel. Let's look at 13. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And here we're given more details on what we read in verse 6. But note that Satan is still not giving up. Verse 14. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. One year, two years, and a half year. Three and a half years. Verse 15, And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened up its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. 
At last he must give up his onslaught on this protected remnant of Israel, but enraged all the more, he storms off to inflict his worst on the rest of her children. Verse 17. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. I take that to mean Jews and Gentiles alike. He's going to do his worst. As you can see, there's a lot lot here to digest. This section reveals a period of three and one-half years in which Satan is markedly more dangerous to man than he's ever been before. Hence, it is called the Great Tribulation. He truly is a fire-breathing dragon. Or as the Apostle Peter put it, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5, 8b. And in our next session, we'll begin our examination of this session, this section. Father God, we're about in this study to be knee-deep in very bad things. we remind ourselves that it is all according to your sovereign rule. You are not surprised by any of this. In fact, you're orchestrating it. But Satan will be doing his worst. And mankind will live through the worst time ever experienced on this earth. We look forward to the return of your Son the Messiah. And everything will change. Give us grace. Give us patience. Give us understanding. And your wisdom by the power of your Spirit to apprehend these troubling and troublesome passages. In the name of our Lord Jesus, Amen.